episode of the uncover up i'm your co-host nathan radke and with me today is nobody it's just you and me today listener but that's appropriate because this is a scary spooky halloween episode and what is scarier and spookier than loneliness but you might be asking where are lee and elena well let me tell you A few days ago, we were all at a party enjoying ourselves. Then Elena came up to me and said that she was going to try out a little experiment. She was going to go into the washroom, close the door, turn off the lights, light some candles, stare into the mirror, and say Bloody Mary three times just to see what would happen. Well, we saw her go into the washroom and close the door. From under the door, we saw the lights go off. Then a small flickering glow emerged as she lit the candles. Then we heard some murmuring. Then we heard nothing. Then, suddenly, the candlelight disappeared from under the washroom door. Lee and I kicked down the door and turned on the lights, but there was nobody in the washroom. Okay, sure, that explains what happened to Elena, you might be saying. But what about Lee? Well, I mean, after we couldn't find Elena in the washroom, Lee was pretty shook up, as you can imagine. To calm his nerves, he took a big mouthful of his favorite candy, uh, Pop Rocks. Then, before he completely swallowed them, he took a big swig of a soda can. Those standing near him started to hear a strange noise, like a cross between a rumble and a fizz. Suddenly, foam erupted out of Lee's mouth and his nose, and before we could help him, his entire head exploded. Now, of course, those stories aren't true. Lee and Len are both fine. It's just that we have our first big live podcast this weekend, and they are both super busy. Now, why aren't I busy, you might ask? Excellent question, listener. Uh, You know now that we record these episodes in a concrete bunker surrounded by Soviet-era electric guitars. Well, I mean, if you follow us on Instagram, you've almost certainly seen pictures of the bunker. It isn't just our studio. That's also where I live. So it is a lot easier for me to record these episodes. But the fact that neither of those stories is true isn't the only thing they have in common. They're also both examples of uh, the form of information transmission that's normally called the urban legend. And they are also both stories that I heard around Halloween when I was a little kid out for recess. Now, of course, we normally stay in our lane when we do these podcasts and concentrate on conspiracy theories. Uh, But there are actually many similarities between the conspiracy theories that we study and urban legends. Both are unofficial versions of the truth that tend to be spread virally by uh, word of mouth or social media. And... Something else that they share in common is that urban legends, like conspiracy theories, are sometimes true. For example, you may have heard the story of the haunted house that was a super popular Halloween attraction in a small town not too far from here. It had rooms with rubber bats and fake skeletons, and actors dressed up as witches and goblins. It was hella tight. And the best part of the whole haunted house, the pièce de résistance, was when you got to the very end of the tour, you would come face to face with what looked like the mummified remains of a dead body hanging from an old rope noose. Some of the braver patrons of the haunted house would even touch its papery skin or even kiss it on the cheek. At the end of the Halloween season, the haunted house workers were taking down all the decorations for the year. 
but when one of the workers tried to move the mummy by picking it up by the arm, the arm came off, and inside the arm the worker could see human bones. The fake mummy had actually been a real dead human being the whole time. This story is true, sort of. Uh, In 1911, an outlaw named Elmer McCurdy was killed in a shootout with police. Uh, Because nobody claimed his body, nobody paid the funeral director for the embalming job. But because this guy was an astute businessman, the funeral director then put the body of McCurdy up in his funeral home and charged people money to come and gawk at it. Well, this went on for some time, but finally two men claiming to be McCurdy's brothers came to the funeral home to claim the body and to give it the dignified burial it deserved. Although actually, as I'm sure you've probably guessed, the two men weren't McCurdy's brothers at all. They actually ran a traveling carnival. So McCurdy's corpse became a traveling carnival exhibit for a few years. Uh, Then in 1933, it was sold to a film director named Dwayne Esper, who had just produced a ridiculous Reefer Madness-style movie about the dangers of drugs called Narcotic, with an exclamation mark. You know a movie's good when there's an exclamation mark right in the title. And uh, when Esper was showing his movies in theaters, he would actually put McCurdy's body in one of the theater seats in order to create the right atmosphere. Now, eventually, McCurdy's body was sold, along with a bunch of wax figures, to the Hollywood Wax Museum but not before it had appeared on the 1967 film She Freak, which I haven't seen, but I absolutely will go find now. For a while, McCurdy was part of an exhibition on Mount Rushmore, and then finally McCurdy was sold to an amusement park in Long Beach, California, by which time people had forgotten that this was a real human body and not a movie prop. Then in 1976, during the filming of an episode of The Six Million Dollar Man, a crew member moved McCurdy out of the way, and McCurdy's arm tore off, revealing, of course, that this was a dead human being and not a movie prop after all. Or maybe you've heard the story of the power lawyer who worked his way up to the top of his firm and the top floor of his office building. He was a real prankster, and he enjoyed playing tricks on the new articling students on their first day of orientation. He would be showing them around the top floor of the office on the 24th floor, when he would suddenly run towards a window and throw himself against it. The students would all gasp and shriek but he would then bounce harmlessly off the shatterproof glass. Until one day, he had a fresh batch of students up on the 24th floor. As always, he ran at the window and threw himself against it. But this time, instead of bouncing back, the window popped out of its frame, sending both the window and the lawyer hurtling to the ground hundreds of feet below. This one seems a bit too on the nose to be true, since it sounds like kind of like a bit of a morality play. Uh, We've got this powerful man, uh, filled with hubris and arrogance. Because of his actions, he is both figuratively and literally brought down to earth. Uh, This one, unfortunately, is also true. In fact, this happened in our town of Toronto in 1993. There was a lawyer in the TD building, for those of you who are listening to Toronto, and he had the habit of scaring new employees with this shatterproof glass trick. And one day, He's up on the 24th floor. He's got a new bunch of employees. He throws himself at the window. And in the window's defense, it did not shatter. It held up to its reputation as being shatterproof glass, but it did pop out of the frame, and both the window and the lawyer, unfortunately, plummeted to the ground 24 stories below. But, of course, most urban legends aren't true. Uh, But sometimes they have, like, a a hint of truth to them. Uh, The Bloody Mary legend, for example— I mean, obviously, if you do that uh, in a mirror, there isn't going to be some kind of monster that comes and takes your soul or what have you or brings you into the mirror reverse world or any of the other things that could happen. However, 
If you're in a heightened state of fear and nervousness, if you've sort of worked yourself up, if you've gotten yourself good and scared because you've convinced yourself that something is going to happen if you do this, and you go into a, a washroom and it's only lit by flickering candlelight, and you stare at yourself for long enough, uh, there is a good chance that what's going to happen is that your mind is going to play a bit of a trick on you and you're going to see something out of the corner of your eye. It's even possible that... I mean, you can try this experiment if you want. If you stare at something long enough, you'll notice that, like, if you look at a pattern on a wallpaper, for example, and if you just stare at it, you'll start to notice that bits of the pattern start to disappear. And this is because your brain has gotten tired of... Well, I mean, I'm no, I'm no brain scientist, but what I understand is that your brain starts to say, okay, well, this can't be that important. It's not moving. It hasn't changed. I'm going to start filtering some of this stuff out. But if you're looking at your own reflection and your brain starts to do something like this and the light isn't that good to begin with and you're in a high, high state of nervousness and susceptibility, maybe it looks like something demonic has happened. Maybe you feel like you saw a demon. Maybe your own face has even turned slightly demonic. As for Lee's exploding head, uh, pop rocks and soda obviously won't make your head blow up. Although I have done, of course, as we all have, the experiments with Mentos and Diet Coke in pop bottles, and with mixed success, I gotta say. But candy-related legends are super common, especially, of course, around Halloween. Uh, the most famous one is probably the idea that people are putting razor blades or needles in candy in order to carve up children's mouths. And I, I totally remember being told this one. I remember the other kids at recess the week after Halloween would swear that this definitely happened to a friend of a friend of theirs. Now, this idea of the friend of the friend, of course, classic urban legend line, because it makes the story sound true, because there is that personal connection, but it's a remote enough connection so that it would be very difficult to verify or check up on. And so as a kid, there was always this fear you would be getting your chocolate bars or what have you, and there'd always be this moment where you'd wonder, am I going to bite into nougat or am I going to bite into needle? And of course, there have been examples of people placing objects in candy. But here's where it gets a bit strange, because it seems like the urban legend that people were doing this is older than actual incidents of people doing this. So what does that mean? It means that when the legend came out, it wasn't true. People hadn't done this. And the people who did do it had probably heard this legend. So what that means is that the legend didn't come about because people were doing this, but the few people who have done this probably did it because they had heard this legend. Uh, there were similar versions when I was a kid about how uh, people had coated candy in LSD. Now, of course, none of us ever encountered candy that was covered in LSD. You could draw a pretty easy line from some of the terrible experiments that the CIA was doing in the 1950s and 60s to that urban legend. It only takes a slight tweak for that to go from something that was true, that the CIA during... MKUltra was dosing people with acid against their will into sort of a more urban legend style Halloween candy related incident. Uh, but most urban legends are just wildly inaccurate. But this doesn't mean that they aren't worth studying. Uh, I mean, it's the same thing for me, Lee, and Elena when we're studying conspiracy theories. When we come across one that is demonstrably false, which, as you could imagine, happens a lot, we don't just sort of toss it aside and dismiss it it still provides us with the opportunity to learn something. But we have to sort of shift our focus. Now our focus is, okay, we know that this conspiracy theory is probably untrue, 
But why do people believe it? Where did it come from? And why? What is the subtext behind this theory? Uh, And the same thing is true about urban legends. Almost all of the stories that I heard on the recess grounds at Springbrook Elementary were totally false. But each of them could tell me something about the times I was living in. Or they could have told me something if I had understood what subtext was when I was six years old. I did not. For example, here's an urban legend that one of my students who grew up in the Soviet Union told me about a few weeks ago. Uh, She said it was popular when she was a kid in the 1980s. Be careful if you buy American blue jeans. Hidden in the seams is a little glass capsule, and the little glass capsule is full of lice and fleas. Those lice and fleas are infected with syphilis, so when you put the jeans on, the capsule breaks, the fleas and lice escape, bite you, and infect you with syphilis. All right, so first of all, I mean, both the Americans and the Soviets, and the Canadians for that matter, had projects during the Cold War about weaponizing insects. But this legend is not an example of that. This legend is totally false. Um, And it doesn't take too much questioning to come up with some problems with this particular legend. Uh, I don't think fleas and lice could survive an indefinite amount of time sealed up in a glass capsule. Uh, I don't think arachnids and insects can transfer syphilis to humans. Uh, So what is this story really about? Or to put it another way, to put it a fancy academic way, what is the subtext of this story? This is something we've talked about before on the Uncover-Up. There are different kinds of power. There's the hard power of guns and batons and missiles and tanks and violence. But there's also the soft power of ideas. And ideas can be just as weaponized as a bullet or a bomb. And of course, the Cold War, uh, which is a topic that I believe I probably spend about 25 to 30% of my time talking about, even in my personal life, was a battle of ideologies. And a war of ideologies is going to take place in part in the minds of the citizens of those countries. Like that is some of the territory that you're trying to win. You're not necessarily trying to move the physical borders, but instead you're trying to, rather than occupy the enemy's territory, you're trying to occupy the minds of your enemy's citizens. And so to a Soviet patriot of the 1980s, Wearing American blue jeans wasn't just a fashion choice, it was a political choice. You weren't just wearing a piece of clothing, you were wearing a piece of American consumerism and capitalism. I mean, think about what is more iconically American than the idea of the blue jean. Maybe maybe a McDonald's burger. But if you bit a McDonald's burger, again, you're not just eating a, a mediocre bit of fast food, you're eating America. And in the 1980s, the Soviet leadership were concerned that American culture was going to spread throughout the USSR. The syphilis infection from the urban legend was actually symbolic, and it stood in for an idea of like a cultural infection. American blue jeans didn't need to be filled with diseased insects. The genes themselves were a kind of cultural infection that the Kremlin was worried about. And social change is often scary to people. I mean, even when the change that's happening is for the better. In fact, I mean, for people who have been benefiting from a crooked or unfair system, change for the better is often something that they try to resist, because they know that change for the better will result in a society that is less crooked and less unfair. And if they're the ones who have been benefiting from that crooked, unfair system, they're going to want to try to protect it. But for anybody, really, any change that happens in a society is going to cause some kind of unease. And often one of the ways that we can detect that unease is that it'll show up in the form of an urban legend about that change in society. 
Uh, for example, here's a stone-cold classic from 1950s America that you will almost certainly have heard before. Two teenagers were out for a drive and decided to go to Makeout Point and park their car, if you know what I mean. To set the mood, the boy turned on the radio, but instead of romantic music, the two of them heard an emergency announcement from the car speakers. Attention! A deranged lunatic has escaped from the state asylum. He is considered extremely dangerous, and all caution should be taken. He can be recognized by the hook that he has instead of his right hand. Well, now, the boy wasn't too worried about this. He was preoccupied with getting a little action. But the girl was concerned about this. When the music came back on and the boy started pitching more woo, the girl turned down his advances. He tried a few more times, but each time the girl demanded to be taken home. Finally, the boy got irritated, slammed the car in reverse, and pulled out of Makeout Point and drove the girl back to her home. He pulled up to her house and got out of the car. He walked to her side to open the door to let her out of the car, when suddenly he stopped and screamed. The girl jumped out of the car to see what was wrong. The boy pointed down to the outside door handle of the car. Hanging there, dripping fresh blood, was the severed hook that had been ripped off the lunatic's arm when the boy reversed the car. So what's this story about? It isn't really about mental illness, although obviously mental illness is featured prominently in this story. And obviously, as well, inaccurately. Uh, despite what we see in movies and television, people who suffer from mental illness are far more likely to be victims of violence than perpetrators of it. But there is something that this story is about. Uh, this legend starts to circulate at a time when there's a massive change to society. Before the invention of comfortable and reliable cars, teenagers basically had to go out for dates in public places like box socials and farm dances and etc. Or you had to sit on the front porch of your parents' house while your parents came out and brought you lemonade. But as American culture increasingly embraced the car, it caused a massive change throughout that society. It is not a coincidence that so many of the urban legends from the 1950s feature cars in them. And one of the big fears that the olds had was that the next generation, who were freed from the front porch, would inevitably succumb to the siren song of backseat hubba-jubba. Despite the fact that, I mean, their parents, even in the 1920s, there were frantic newspaper editorials referring to cars as, and I quote, brothels on wheels. So what is this story about? It's not about mental illness. It's about premarital sex. And it's also worth noting the sexist roles that are being perpetuated in this legend. Uh, in most versions of this story, the boy is depicted as being barely able to control himself. And it's the girl who's given the responsibility of making sure the two of them don't have sex. Uh, the idea that the boy would be able to control himself, or that the girl might be more interested in Hubba Jubba than the boy, they're not really entertained in these early versions. They're reinforcing this idea that it's the girl's job to kind of protect herself from sex and that boys can't be counted on to behave responsibly and they're not even capable of controlling their actions when it comes to sex. And of course, both of those ideas are inaccurate and both of those ideas are harmful. So neither of those two legends, neither the syphilis-riddled blue jeans in the Soviet Union in the 1980s or the escaped hook-handed lunatic in America in the 1950s, neither of them are true. And yet when we look at them, we learn a lot about the societies in which they emerged. And that's why we should pay attention to urban legends. And it's also why we should pay attention to false conspiracy theories, or even to popular horror movies. Ultimately, 
We learn a lot about ourselves when we pay attention to what we are afraid of.